Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you've maybe um, slipped in or just joined us, my name is Ryan. Um, I'm on staff here, and it's a pl- privilege for me to share with you this morning. We started a, a, a new series last week um, to- called Living with Jesus. We're uh, journeying through the Gospel of Mark um, this year and beyond. We'll take a few breaks along the way. It should be a fun ride. But uh, this is our second part. We're breaking it up into series along the way, and this series is is about living with Jesus, and it, it's really looking at stories and situations that show us how people lived with Jesus when he was on earth and how we might live with him now, how we can today be walking with Jesus. And, and one of the things you'll pick up along the way is life with Jesus was pretty wild. Uh, it was pretty intense. It was a, quite an adventure. It's a, I can imagine what it would have been like to walk those dusty roads and the Jerusalem cruisers those sandals that they would wear and in their robes and and to be encountering different crowds and people and all the situations that Jesus would have been a part of. There would be storms and walking on water. It does sound like a great series or movie, an epic adventure. But life with Jesus was also challenging. Um, If you wanted to be his disciple, as we've already seen, you'd have to leave a lot behind. A lot of the disciples would have left jobs and families and, and had to deny themselves things that maybe they would have indulged in before because life with Jesus is hard and it is challenging and it is confusing, but it was always worth it because it was with him. It was challenging sometimes for the disciples because Jesus didn't spend all of his time coddling them. It's quite interesting how many times he actually spends being frustrated with them, not quite getting it and not quite clicking. And he spends his time patiently helping them to see, helping them, showing them what they need to see and how they need to adjust their vision of God and their vision of God's promises. And so this week we're in the section of, of Mark chapter 3 where Mark gives us a bit of a summary statement of some of the stuff Jesus had been up to. He gives us some p- particular stories, but every now and again he breaks with these little hinge statements, these, these sections where he just says, this is what Jesus was up to quite casually. And you sort of wonder, well, could I get a bit more insight? But as we look through this passage, I believe there are some insights that we can take out and particularly insights into how people back then and how we now can respond to Jesus. This passage will highlight for us ways that we can, ways that we do, potentially wrong ways that we do, and ways that we should respond to Jesus. You may actually have noticed this theme coming up time and time again in this gospel because the writers of all the gospels were not just historians. It wasn't just about writing a biography. They had a purpose. They had an intention. They actually wanted to show their readers something important, something vital. They wanted to show us who Jesus is and how we should respond to him. John in his gospel, right out at the bat, tells us, and he says, I write these things so that you will believe. I have an intention. I'm not just reporting the facts. I want you to believe for the sake of your soul, for the sake of life. See, it's the most important thing about every single one of us. It's the most important thing about every single human being is how we respond to Jesus. It's how we respond to Jesus. It will shape your life. And, and change it completely. But it will also shape your eternity. It will give you hope if you respond rightly 
Because the most important thing for all of us is how do we respond to Jesus? And so let's read this section together and draw out some, some thoughts and see what Mark is trying to show us. Mark chapter 3, verse 7 to 12. We'll look at the first few verses. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea again. Interesting how this pattern of Jesus withdrawing and engaging continues. Just thought I'd note that because I've already done a whole sermon on it. Foreshadowing. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And just a few things I want us to note before we continue is Jesus' popularity is starting to grow. Right, He's starting to do things. We've looked at some of these stories where he's healing people. He's encountering people. He's giving teaching with authority. Right, He's engaging with the Pharisees. And his popularity is starting to increase. His ministry is growing. People are coming from all over the place. They're charged up to see Jesus. They're, so, they're more excited than I was to see Endgame. Okay, reference that some people didn't get. That's all right. New Marvel movie. We'll move on. Right? The anticipation was there. They're camel cruising from all over to get to Jesus. They're hopping up and down on a camel, trying to get to where Jesus is because they want to experience his ministry. And if you're like me, even though I did my my theology degree, sometimes I read those places and I didn't memorize the maps and I don't really know what all of that means. But let me give you an idea of just how far these people came to see Jesus to hear him, to experience his ministry. I don't know how far you'd go to maybe see your favorite band. I don't know how far you'd go to maybe see your favorite preacher, if you even have one of those. But people were charged up to see Jesus. Sidon is one of the places. It's, a, it's the place 50 miles north of where Jesus was. Let me remind you that they were on camels or walking. 50 miles To give you an understanding of where that is, that would be like us walking from this church to Eastbourne. Anyone up for a walk for the weekend away? Great way to start. 50 miles north. Jerusalem, from where Jesus was, was about 85 miles south. That's like walking from this church to Peterborough. Soul survivor. I think the youth will be keen. (laughs) Bit of a trek. 85 miles south. And Idumea was a region that was further south than that by another 40 to 45 miles. That's like walking from here to Derby or Wolverhampton. And if you walk straight with no sleep, you'll get there in two days. People actually heard about Jesus. No SMS, no email, no text. This is word of mouth. And the popularity is spreading miles and people can't wait to get there. They want to experience his ministry. People are excited about Jesus. They've heard what he's doing, and they're desperate to experience his ministry as we read on. He told his disciples to have the boat ready for him. You see, people got so excited, it actually became dangerous for Jesus. He, he got an escape plan ready. He told his disciples, have the boat ready, lest they crush me. For he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And then we get this weird sentence at the end. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Notice again how desperate people are to touch Jesus. To experience his healing ministry. 
They're so desperate that it threatens his safety. You see, Jesus does a quick risk assessment. And he goes, we need an escape plan. We need an escape boat. I, I had a, a bit of a moment. I wasn't sure if I was even going to say this. Where I just thought it was quite fun to, quite, to picture Jesus escaping on a boat. Because there were no motorboats in those days. So it wasn't like he hopped in and James bonded out there. It was more probably someone rowing. So I just picture him being like jumping in the boats and the disciples are rowing. And it's like, Judas, stop counting the money. Just start rowing. Peter, stop talking to these people. Start rowing. Get going. We need to get out of here. These people are going to crush me because they're desperate for my ministry. I don't know when last you were that desperate for Jesus. But they were. It's an interesting theme, though, that comes out right at the end of this verse because the evil spirits are responding to Jesus as well. And we'll look a bit more at that. But, but in order to understand how they're responding, it's probably good for us to understand why Jesus is strictly ordering them not to say who he is, even though they're saying a true statement. There's this theme of people that Jesus heals, and then he says, tell no one. Very different from what he says at the end of his ministry when he says, go make disciples. Even some of his disciples, you'll say, after they've confessed who he is, you'll say, don't tell people yet. There was a timing element and there was a, a reason behind this. And the demons who know who Jesus is, again, very peculiar, Jesus says, strictly do not tell people. He wouldn't let them. He ordered them not to make it known who he was. So why was Jesus keeping his identity a secret. Why the big secret? They call this the messianic secret, not showing, not revealing who Jesus was as the Messiah. That's what they meant by son of God. And in order to understand why Jesus would keep this a secret, it's important for us to understand the understanding that the people would have had about who the Messiah would be. You see, Messiah is a fancy word. It means anointed one. It's the same thing Christ means. And they expected this anointed ruler, this deliverer to come, this promised individual who would come and deliver God's people. This promise tracks all the way back into Genesis 3. All the way back into Genesis 3, where after the, the fall and there's been the, the mess up and God comes and he says, cursed are you to the serpent. And he, he, he gives out this, this judgment for this wrongdoing of sin that's entered the world. But he says this interesting statement. He makes this promise of a deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent. This ruler who would come and crush their enemy. At the end of Genesis, in Genesis 49, now we have the 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes. And one of the sons, Judah, he's one of the most blessed sons because he doesn't make too many mistakes. And, uh, and he's one of the older ones. And so he becomes a blessed son. But it, it's interesting that in the blessings that God makes, uh, that Jacob makes for him, it's, it's referenced again that the scepter, this ruler, this person would come from the tribe of Judah. So now this ruler that was promised in Genesis 3 by God is now promised to come from a particular tribe, from the tribe of Judah. Who comes from the tribe of Judah? King David. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I know I'm speeding through, we're going to actually take a break later on in the year to look at some of these foundational pieces of the gospel, some of the rootings in the Old Testament. But what I can tell you is King David came from the tribe of Judah, and God makes a covenant, a promise with him and says, from your line, King David, will come a ruler. From your heritage will come a ruler, and he will sit on the eternal throne. He will be the promised deliverer, the anointed one, who would rule forever 
And then we get a littering of prophecies, some of the most powerful ones in Isaiah, like the one about the the virgin birth, the one about the promised ruler upon whom God's spirit would rest. All of this created this anticipation, this expectation for God's promised Messiah, God's promised ruler. But as often happens with people, this expectation started to get distorted over time. You see, Israel started to tie up this ruler's role into their political and military expectations. It started to take a form of something that God didn't really intend. They expected someone who would liberate the nation, who would rule them like a king and make Israel great. And John notes This interesting moment after Jesus feeds the 5,000 in John chapter 6. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And then Jesus, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They wanted a king. And when they saw what Jesus was doing, they saw this hint that he might be this promised ruler. But this, this thing tied up in their political expectations, in their military expectations. They wanted a king who would deliver a nation, but they could not fathom a ruler who would come to serve. A king who would come to be killed and a savior who would save by dying. It wasn't in their mind frame. You see, God's promises to them became tied up in their own ideas. It became tied up in their own needs, in their own wants. They wanted a particular kind of deliverer, and so they couldn't see the deliverer God was providing. They couldn't see the king who came to be killed, the savior who came to save by dying sacrificially. And so Jesus needs to rework their understanding of God's kingdom, He needs to rework their understanding of who this Messiah is and how he would come to save before he would fully reveal himself. Otherwise, they would come and force him to be king. What an interesting thought. Because they wanted him to rule in a particular way. And so it's important for us to note at this point that we should be very careful and diligent to drop our own misplaced expectations and ideas about Jesus so that we can recognize him for who he truly is and not miss him. See, there are two reactions that I want to highlight in this passage. I want to highlight the reaction of the crowd, at least part of it. The crowds had some false view of Jesus because they did not see him right. And later, let's talk a bit about the evil spirits. But let's start with the crowds and talk about what it means to see Jesus rightly. See, it's hard for us to know all of the crowds. We see that there's a multitude of people coming from all over the places. But we know that at least some of them loved him only for what they could, he could do for them. They did not love Jesus for who he was. They only loved him for what he could do for them. Again, later on in that John chapter 6, Jesus actually answers these people. He's just done the feeding of the 5,000, Right? Interesting then that that's why they want to make him king. So he he spots this and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You had a good meal. I fed you. That's why you love me. That's why you're after me. 
And just after this, Jesus actually preaches a message to them. He says, okay, come crowds, you want bread from me? Let me preach a message. And he preaches this message about, I am the bread of life. I am your provision, not just the source of it, not just the dispenser. And the disciples even turn, they say, Jesus, this is a hard teaching. You're going to lose followers. They're not going to be happy. This is a hard teaching. And in verse 66, we get a very heartbreaking verse. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They no longer walked with him. See, they saw Jesus as something they wanted him to be, and so they did life with Jesus up to a point when they realized he's not meeting the expectations that I have. He's not meeting the expectations that I have of him. And so they no longer walked with him. If we want to live with Jesus, we need to see him and love him as not something, as something he is, not as something he is not. They loved him as something he was not. Their love was rooted in a picture of Jesus that was not real. It was rooted in an idea. But here's the thing. God is not an idea. He's a person. He's, he's a person who must be known for who he is. A person tells you who they are. They have a character and a personality that you can't adapt for your own benefits. He's a person to be known, and he wants to reveal himself. He wants to make himself known, but we can't alter him. We can't reinvent him. Our job is to recognize him and respond to him. And so the crowds loved him as something that he was not. And if it's possible for us to love Jesus as something he is not, to love a false image of him, it is also possible for us to believe all the right things of Jesus and yet not be a Christian. And this is what the demons were guilty of. You see, they loved Jesus. We need to love Jesus truly. The crowds loved Jesus falsely. The demons hated Jesus truly. Let me explain what that is. I realize I may have taken a really roundabout way of getting there, but it's actually fairly simple. Have you noticed in the scriptures how the demons have pretty good doctrine, right? They believe all the right things. They know who Jesus is, like perfectly. James even says, even the demons believe. They don't just know, they actually believe who Jesus is, and yet they're believing all the right things, but they're not Christians, right? They're not saved. They don't have eternal hope. They don't have eternal life. They don't have saving, salvation by grace. Why? What's the difference What's the difference between a Christian who believes the tr truth, who sees Jesus as he is, and a demon who believes the truth and sees Jesus as he is? What is the difference? It's love. See, the demons hated Jesus for who he was. Or some people are indifferent. A Christian loves Jesus for who he is, cherishes Jesus for who he is, the truest mark of a genuine Christian is not just right beliefs. You can do the right things and have the right beliefs and not be a Christian. And I don't say that to be harsh. I, I say that to love us. To love us because we need to examine our hearts. It's not just up here. 
Jesus says, you need to love me. Perfect doctrine gets you almost nowhere if it does not lead you to a place of loving Jesus, loving him for who he really is. And there's so many passages we could go to for this, but I thought I'd just go to a simple story that Jesus himself says. Matthew 13, verse 44, parable of the hidden treasure. This is what it's like to see Jesus and respond truly. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. If I had the time, I'd just unpack. What what does that mean? To with joy sell everything that you could just have this one thing. I mean, that is love. That is treasuring. That is cherishing. That is a responding to Jesus because of the worth he actually has in himself. We need to love Jesus truly. And so as I wrap up, I want to highlight for us that there are two wrong ways we respond to Jesus. As we've seen, we can love him for what he's not. Create for ourselves an individual creation of who Jesus is for us. But he's a person, and he's not alterable. We can't just make alterations to who he is. Or we can be indifferent, or even worse, hate Jesus for what he is. But the call for us is to respond rightly, to see Jesus as he's revealed himself to us, to see him as he truly is, and to love him deeply. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online, wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org.uk.